ultimate hero, Jesus. We're, we're kind of concluding the series today, but not really. So I, I need to tell you this up front, that uh, as you're going through these notes, you're thinking, uh-oh, here's another long one. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish it next week because it's this important. To do a flyby in one week of Jesus is just really difficult. And I'm going to do a, well, what I call just a panoramic perspective of Jesus and talk about him really from, from Genesis to the book of Revelation and, and just kind of highlight some of the key things, the reasons why and the purposes for who Jesus is and why he came. So don't panic. Uh, we're going to finish it next week. And uh, we're going to start it today, but we're going to start in Genesis 1. I, I don't know about you, but home. Well, what's the first thought that you get when you think about home? I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I just, all thoughts, all kinds of thoughts are conjured up when I think about home and, and the different homes that I grew, in, grew up in. Some good, some bad, some very indifferent. I don't know how many of you have done this, but because I moved away from home in 1980, actually 1978. And uh, then I moved away from Oregon in 1981, so my kids never grew up in the area that I grew up in. So, you know, when they got old enough, did you ever do this where you took your kids home and you took them on the grand tour? I did, I, I've done that a couple of times. I really didn't want them to forget where I came from. I said, here's... Here's when I lived with Grandpa and Grandma Riley. Then Grandpa was the most influential person in my life, and it was in Willamette. And then I took him over to Robinwood, where I lived in this little place called Robinwood, where I grew up. And then we'd go to 13401 Southeast Oatfield Road in Milwaukee. And then I took him to the first trailer park that I lived in, in uh, uh, on McLaughlin Boulevard. And then I took him to the other trailer park that I moved to called Oak Acres. Took him to uh, Yucca Street in that little big trailer park in this cul-de-sac that I lived on. Then I took him to 1615 Northeast Buck Street in West Lynn. I told him stuff about each one of those homes, each one of those houses, because they were all so different and so diverse. Has anybody else ever done that with your kids? One, two, three. Okay, good. I'm not the only kind of, you know, nostalgic uh, weirdo. But I want to talk about home because ultimately, I think that's what God's all about. And so I want to just kind of take you through this thing. There's going to be two key words that you're going to pick up on, hopefully, in the next two weeks. And the first one really is home. See, in the picture of Genesis chapter 1, some of you may or may not be able to see this. Anthony did a wonderful job of putting some pictures together. But this is a picture of the cosmos. This is a God spoke everything into existence. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted to set up and he wanted to establish a home. He created a home for humanity. Now, if you would, let's just read quickly here, Genesis chapter 1, the first couple verses. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want you to notice something. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But there's kind of, some scholars believe that there's a significant break in between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. 
darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, as you read verse 1, it really is a summary statement of what God did. In the beginning, God created. And then as you go to verses 2 through chapter 2, verse 25, it really begins to tell how or the process of how he did it. But this is the bottom line. It all starts with God. In the beginning, God. What we begin to see is he self-existed. He is the beginning. The universe is not here by accident. I mean, can you imagine if everything just so happened? Things like, well, the, the earth is 93 million miles from the sun. Much closer, what would happen? We would burn up much further away. We'd freeze. Just so happens. The atmosphere is balanced with a combination of nitrogen and oxygen to keep us alive. There's an ozone layer or blanket of protection around our earth. See, all of this, friends, begins to speak of individual design. And, and you know this. You can't have design without a designer. God, he is the designer of all the intelligent, all wise. He is that being. And I don't know about you, but it's so much easier to believe in something this that is so much larger and beyond us than a vast series of accidental combinations. See, we see here the first occurrence of the name of God. And in the Hebrew, it's Elohim. And the I am at the end is the plural ending in the, in the Hebrew. And this is called the, the plural of majesty. And it really means this, that God is very God. Elohim is God, very God. And when who we believe the writer to be Moses, through the inspiration of God's spirit, as he speaks this, he's trying to set apart. He is not just a deity. He is the majestic deity of all. Elohim. It's a plural name with a singular meaning. And this word right here becomes the first indication that all persons of the Trinity are present during creation. Doing what? Well, they're underscoring again God's majesty and power as we see the term Elohim used throughout chapter 1 of Genesis. Now, I'm not here to teach on creation at this time, but there's a few things that I do want to touch on that the evolutionary hypothesis has so many holes in it. They believe everything evolved, but well, everything has to be. There has to be somewhere what? A first cause. Well, we say that the first cause is God. The skeptic will say that, well, where did God come from? He didn't. He is pre-existent. I mean, he is trans... He has always been. He has no beginning. That's why Revelation calls him the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning, he's the end. But he's the beginning because he is everything. He's never had a start. He's just always been. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 1 in the Gospels, that's why John wrote, and he said, in the beginning... The phrase that he uses, in the beginning, the word already existed. What's the word? It's a reference to Jesus Christ. As John is writing to the, to the Gentile mindset, he wants them to see 
This is the expression, the thought of God that comes through the word. Before there's a word, there's a thought. And he says Jesus Christ becomes the expression of God to humanity. He's the word. And it says in the beginning, the word already existed. Well, here's the beginning, but before the beginning, the word was already existed, Jesus Christ. And the word was with God, and guess what? The word was God, John 1, 1. And this first, God, this first verse of the gospel speaks of this pre-incarnate Christ who was present before time as we know it. Well before the universe ever started. You say, well, okay, well, good. This is all about creation. That's nice. Why would you go there? There's probably some of you, and, and this is not bad because maybe you didn't grow up in church, but it's possible that there's some here that believe Jesus started out in Christmas time in Bethlehem in this little manger. But he didn't. That is simply when Jesus was birthed and come as a man to humble himself as we sung about this morning that he comes as his humble king to express himself as God incarnate, God in the flesh. But John 1 says, I want you to know there was this pre-existent, there was the word, the expression of God that appeared long before the beginning of time as we know it. See, he was pre-existent. He is eternal. He has always been. And we, and we see Jesus even throughout the Old Testament. Now, it isn't said that it's Jesus, but we have these things, uh, theologians call it a Christophany, which is a pre-Bethlehem incarnate Christ who appears. You'll see it in Joshua chapter 5. You see it in Genesis chapter 32 often referred to as the angel of the Lord. No angel ever received worship, but this angel of the Lord did. And so we begin to see that Jesus has been, always has been, always will be. And you see there at the beginning of creation that he is there with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus is the one that is intricately involved in the creation of our universe, our home. The home for mankind. Hebrews 1.3 says this, Recently he spoke to us directly through his Son. By his Son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will all belong to the Son, Jesus, in the end. The Son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. Some of your translations will say he is the exact representation of God. Why? Because he is God. He came to show us God. And it says, listen to this, he, hold, he holds everything together by what he says. Powerful words. See, that's what Jesus did. You see him in creation, the pre-existent one, speaking the cosmos into existence. It's by his words that everything is upheld. Now, now let me just make a, a simple point of application on that, that the Word has given us His Word. And the very power that it says that God created with, spoke everything into existence, upholds everything by the power of His Word. Literally, we have His Word today right here. It's powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says it is living and active 
and powerful. Probably one of the most powerful things that we can have in our lives is this word. But we really don't use it. And I want to encourage you. The only real tangible thing in the spiritual realm that we have, I mean that we can put our hands on, is God's word. And that's why it is so critical, loved ones, that we are reading it, spending time in it, loving it, receiving it into our heart and our life, because this is what will begin to produce spiritual power for our lives. But you'll notice we read in verse 3. Genesis 1, verse 3, it says, We have the first record of God speaking, and what does he say? Over the earth he declares, let there be light. Literally, it's this, light be. Now, what's powerful about this is we have the, the light of the world. Jesus, as one of his declarations, one of his I am statements, the light of the world, speaking light over this new home. And you see here that God is creating. You see in verse 1, God the Father is the source of all things. And in verse 2, you see the Holy Spirit as the one hovering and literally energizing the creation. And then you see in verse 3, the Word, the light of the world, Jesus speaking light over the world. And it gets this beautiful picture of the Trinity and the Godhead all united, the Elohim, the majestic plural, coming together as one uh, to, to create our home. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Blake talked about sin and the enemy who came. It doesn't take long for this earth to become marred. We see in Genesis chapter 4, where this picture was kind of derived from, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, where it says that the enemy crouches at the door, wanting to devour us. We're like prey to him. See, we're the apple. Proverbs says we're the apple of God's eye. Psalmist said we're the apple of God's eye. So, so what does the enemy want to do? He wants to take the very sweet spot, the most important thing, of God, of Jesus Christ, out of his hands. There's a number of scholars that talk and teach about this thing called the gap theory, and this is what the gap theory is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 declares that God created this perfect and complete earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. But then in verse 2, in the Hebrew language, it's, it's tohu uh, wow bohu. And, and what it literally means is that the earth was without form and it was void, meaning it become chaotic, empty, desolate. Now what's interesting in the same Hebrew phrase is used in Isaiah 45 verse 18 where it says, God did not create it in vain. But the Hebrew words are the same. Tohu wa bohu. But, but the word there is not. He did not create it that way. Well, so which is Right. Now, there's, there's other scholars that disagree with this. But the idea is, is that God created everything in perfection. And then all of a sudden, between verse 1 and verse 2, something significant happened. And those who believe in or 
trust the, in, 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 the ling, in the linguistics of this passage can really take it a couple of different ways. So you really can't be totally and completely sure. But those who line up with this gap theory believe that when God created the world, it was perfect. And then all of a sudden it was wiped out, made desolate by an important event. Well, what, what's that event? Well, it's found in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It's where Lucifer, who was a created angelic being, established a rebellion in heaven, took one-third of the angelic beings with him in rebellion against God, and literally they were booted out of heaven. Well, what happened? Where did they go? To earth. They were booted down to earth. And literally they believed that this was this cataclysmic thing. Literally when hell comes to earth, and causes what? Chaos and desolation, which remember is a great picture of what the enemy comes to do. Now, and remember this. Sometimes people think that, that Satan is the antithesis of Jesus. No, 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 no. They're enemies, but they're not equal and against each other. Jesus is God. Always been there, has been, will be. Satan is a created angel who rose up in rebellion. So people begin to, the scholars believe that this is this cataclysmic thing that happened. And he's thrust to earth, and literally it's hell hits earth and renders it chaotic, desolate. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, that Satan is the god of this world. Jesus affirms that in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 when he's being tempted by him. He says, you've got, basically, he says, you've got the authority to do this. So what's happening here? Well, our home was wrecked. But then in verse 2, what happens? God comes and begins to recreate. Jesus Christ comes and speaks new life to it through the power of the Holy Spirit energizing it. That's God's story. Now, now, now think with me our story. This is really a powerful and precious picture of you and me. God's Spirit comes to work in and to recreate that which, has been, that which in our lives has been messed up and marred by the enemy of God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Behold, behold, if you are in Christ, you become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. See, just like we see the story of Jesus coming and restoring and recreating a desolate, wiped out earth, dividing darkness from light, we're created in God's image. And see, every one of us have been marred by the fall of Genesis chapter 3. All of us have spirits that are no longer living in, in light, but they're living in darkness until the Holy Spirit of God comes and breathes new life into us because we respond to Jesus Christ. Then we're able, as 1 John says, to walk in the light of God and truth. So why does this process happen? We're going to see in just a minute because God, he created this world. Satan come and messed it up, but God always wants to walk with us. He built a home for us, and then he wanted to walk with us. So that's kind of the second thing we see. We see a loss of our home in Genesis chapter 3. It's a loss of our home. 
We see the fall of man. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals and the Lord God he made. And there's a lot of stuff I could talk about in terms of, wow, it's talking serpent and all those things. I, I don't want to get bogged down. I'm going to do some stuff on this sometime down the road, but I don't want to get bogged up in all that. I want to focus on where we're going, the home, the God with. He says, you don't eat from any tree in the garden. The enemy kind of twists the truth here. Verse 2, he says, And the woman said to the serpent, Well, you know what? We can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And God never really said that. Verse 4, But you will surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing God, good and evil. Now, I, my, 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 my personal belief on this one is I really don't blame the women. I don't think that they were ditzy and dumb. I mean, some people do. Can I tell you what I see here? Because I see it today. I believe the woman wanted to be more like God. Not, not in a prideful, bad way, but she wanted to, you know, isn't it, if you see women, they're the ones that are most likely to really engage and be engulfed in Bible study and wanting to learn about God and experience God. And I think that was part of Eve's thing here. Wow, I can, be, I can be more like God. I can have more of his wisdom. I think, it was a, I think it was a spiritual decision, the reason she chose. Well, when the woman saw, verse 6, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable and for gaining wisdom, see that? She took some and ate it, but she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And him, I do but blame a lot. I do. Again, it speaks to the leadership of a man. Leading his wife and his home and his family. Their eyes, both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. First religious activity in the Bible right here. Man said to his wife and heard the voice of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How cool is that? Can you imagine being in the garden and in the cool of the evening, God shows up. Let's talk. Let's walk. Let's eat fruit. And then all of a sudden, they lose that. They're walking and they're, they're first of all, they cover themselves for the first time because they realize they're naked and then they hid because they heard the Lord among the trees and of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? <laughs> That's funny because, you know, God is omniscient, omnipotent. See, he's not really asking if they know, or excuse me, if he knows, he's saying, I want to know if you know. Have you picked up on what's taking place here, Adam and Eve? And he answered, it says, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not from? Again, he just continues to ask questions. He knows. But he's revealing something in Adam and Eve. The man said, well, you know, the woman you put me here with, it's all your fault, God. If you were a better God, I'd probably be a better man. She gave me the fruit from the tree, and well, you know, I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, well, what is it you have done? The woman said, that serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, and he curses the serpent, and 
puts forth some curses. And then let's skip down. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Now remember, they made garments for themselves out of leaves. Verse 21 says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, li- and, eat and live forever. Imagine if they would have taken from the tree of life and they would have left it, lived in this dying, decaying state forever. So God, again, in his grace and mercy, says, I've got to stop this. And then took them out of the garden. It says, so the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden to work the grounds from which he had, which he had been taken. Uh, first mention of the automobile is right here. After God drove the man out, Yeah, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way. Loss of a home. Now, in the beginning, God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he places them in this new home, beautiful digs. Man, this would have been one of the cribs on MTV that people would have wanted to see. We see here, we're led to believe that probably in the cool of the evening at different points, they would have walked with God, and it's probable that this would have been a theophany or a Christophany, Jesus Christ, again, coming to walk with them. Now, we all get kind of, kind of bummed out over this, and we should, because basically the Bible says, you know, if Adam and Eve wouldn't have fallen, we would have. But notice when God talks to them, before restriction comes permission. Notice what verse uh, 16 of chapter 2 says. The Lord said to the man, put him in the garden of Eden and said, work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Before God places restriction on them, he gives them permission. Eat of anything and everything. See, we got this wonderful, precious, gracious God who isn't up there just setting up rules to hold us back and to hinder us, but he gives it to us to bless us and to build us and to take care of us. And he is not restrictive except for our own benefit and our own blessing. The garden was filled with all kinds of delightful fruits and pleasurable eats. And he says, listen, enjoy it. Except for one. One tree. Don't eat from it. Because if you do, you're going to die. And he says, man, this is not some kind of misdemeanor. This isn't some kind of felonous crime. This is worthy of capital punishment leading to a death sentence if you choose your way over mine. See, this is foundational truth and theology. People will say this, well, well Pastor, why, why two trees? Well, first, it really wasn't two trees. It was one tree and a garden full of hundreds of thousands of others. It wasn't like, they, okay, one tree, oh man, we've got two trees here. No, it's one tree and all the others. You see, God didn't want automatons who would simply follow him, his every whim, every command, every demand. He wanted people to relate to him on the basis of love. 
Uh, just like what we want our kids to do. We want to train our kids, give them the options, and prayerfully, hopefully believe that as they mature and understand that our ways usually do work best, they will choose those, right? Well, God's that kind of parent too. But God's creating something else here that we, we, we need to know about, and it's called free moral choice. He's saying, Adam, I'm, I'm not going to make you a puppet. You have a choice. And to demonstrate this, I'm going to give you this whole thing, but I'm going to set up one restri- one restriction over here. And then you're going to choose. See, God could have created us to do as he says, totally. Okay, I will not eat of that treat. You know, automatons, we don't have any choice. But God doesn't operate that way because he understands this. Love must have choice to validate its love. Without choice or option, there is no real love. Can you imagine if I was the only guy on this earth and Trina was here? <laughs> and God says, I want you guys to reproduce and, you know, do something and have kids and all that. <laughs> There's not much choice there. And, and, if, and if we ended up together, I really don't know if she loves me. I figure, yeah, she just, well, here's that loser. I might as well, it's all I got. Just keep him, you know? <laughs> but if I am a loser, still, that's all right. She chose me. And she stuck with me. And I know she loves me. But, but you see that? Love has to have a choice. But, but there is a second tree that God knew about. It's called the tree of Calvary. So God knew. He already had planned. Ephesians 1 says this, that God has chosen us, you and me, in the beloved. And he knew that when, when man chose wrongly, there would be another tree that would work for our benefit, that Jesus Christ would die on. Secondly, God doesn't say, I will kill you. He says, you will die. He says, it will kill you. See, in the, in the fruit on that tree, I'm not sure what it was, but there was something there that would begin to cause men, humanity, to die. See, too often people think that God is wanting to track them down, do them in. But Numbers tells us a very good truth. Be sure of this. Your sins will find you out. Not God your sins. He's just set this thing in motion. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then you go to verse 17, and what does it say? God didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to bring it to God, to bring people home to God. And see, we think God's this this bony-fingered guy up there that every time we do something wrong, he's after us. He's going to get us. No. Well, Pastor, that was the Old Testament you quoted. Okay, Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says this, that some men's sins go before them unto judgment, and some men's sins follow after them unto judgment. Doesn't say anything about God there. He's just set this natural thing in motion that when we sin, we miss God's ways and don't go God's ways. There's going to be natural consequences that happen. And God is sitting back and he's, his heart is breaking because as we're going to see, he made a plan and provision for all of those failures. 
So the Adam and Eve, they're tempted, they eat, and they're quickly left in this state of shame and nakedness, and they quickly fashion their own covering of fig leaves. This day of reckoning arrives as God comes onto the scene, and they know something's horribly wrong because now they're hiding. They never felt this way before. God begins to question them, a little Q&A time. Not for his benefit, but for theirs. And they begin to blame each other. Genesis 3.21 says what? Then God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He did not use leaves. Need to see something here. May not notice it at a quick glance. This is the first death in Scripture. Never seen death. Adam and Eve had never seen bloodshed before. Imagine the horror as they see this animal that Adam has named. They've become somewhat intimate with these animals. They've, they have them around. And all of a sudden, God says, I'm going to kill one of them. And he butchers them. And then he does the unthinkable. What does he do? He takes that skin and he begins to wrap it around them and to clothe them and to cover them with garments that God provides. Now hear me. There's a movement here. God is envisioning a preferable future for humanity with that. We can never, and he's saying you can never add, you can't make your own skins to cover your nakedness of sin and the shame and the things that you've done. You just can't cover it. You can't do your own religious stuff. There's only one way. And it happens through the sacrifice of an innocent one. Here we see this animal that is taken because of their sin. God's going somewhere there. He's pointing forward. God's plan is moving somewhere. Fast forward hundreds of years. There's a thing called the Jewish Day of Atonement. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. It's still celebrated today, Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day of the Jewish year. Atonement focuses on the reconciliation between God and man. Atonement is, is basically... Remember the speeding tickets you last received. That's, well, you got that, and then you had to go to the court. You had to pay a fine for your crime, pay the demands, meet it out by the judicial system. But once you paid that, once you wrote the check and took care of it, well, your misdeed, your speeding was atoned for, satisfied by the demands of justice. Now, there's another theological term. That's an atonement is a theological term. You'll see it in Leviticus 16. But there's also substitutionary, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Remember, we're on a movement here. God's going somewhere. Substitution, basically, we understand it as the idea of a substitute taking the place of someone else, standing in the stead of someone else. You put these words together, and you have the core of the Christian faith. And we begin to see what makes it different from every other religion in the world. The differentiating dynamic of the Bible and Christianity is that we have a substitutionary atonement. We have someone that stands in our place and atones for our wrongdoing. Now listen. Some of us have such a hard time wrapping our mind around it because we have such a strict system of justice. And I do too sometimes. I don't get it. Why would God do this? Why would God die for a Ted Bundy who does all of this stuff? And then maybe on his, before he goes to his execution, he can repent. 
and he can be in heaven. That's not right. No, it's not, but that's grace. That's substitutionary atonement. God has made gracious provision through someone. And he starts showing us in Leviticus, he starts showing us in Genesis 3 and then Leviticus 16. The day of atonement, the high priest, this is what he would do. He would take in two goats. One is offered as a blood sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice. Romans says this. Romans 3 says that the wages of sin is death. The high priest brings in the, another live goat. One of them is a sacrifice. The other one, he brings in this goat. He stands before the nation of Israel and all the people on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, lays his hands on it and he begins to confess the sins of the nation. And after he's done, there's another person that takes this goat out into the desert and leaves him to die. What? As the, atone, as, 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 as the reminder that we killed one as the atonement, but this one is the one that takes the sin and it gets it out of the camp. So this goat's taken into the wilderness. It's a powerful picture and illustration of God's grace. Jeremiah 31 said it this way in 34. We will remember, he will remember our sins and our inequities no more. Psalm 103 says this, as far as the east is from the west, so I have put your iniquities from me. That's what the goat is doing. Taking, symbolic of taking the iniquities, the sin of the nation, and take them outside the camp. Not to be dealt with anymore at the end of the day of atonement. Now get this, hear this. Atonement, break it down. Separate it. At one meant. At one. God is at one with us through the sacrificial system. This is what God is all about, loved ones. He's created a home. Satan come and destroyed it. He recreated it. Man made bad choices, marred by sin, brokenness. God says, I'm going to come up with another plan. I'm going to reveal it through the Old Testament, fulfill it in the New Testament. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? You are my everything. I will sing your praise. You shed your blood for me What can I say? You took my sin and shame A sinner called by name
mercy and grace are mine. Forgiven is my sin. Jesus, my only hope, the Savior of the world. Great is the Lord. We cry. God, let Your kingdom come. Your word has let me see. Thank You for saving. Thank you for saving me. Whoa.